Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode four. Today, I'm speaking with Dina Johnson, an adoptive mother and trauma and attachment therapist who focuses her practice on counseling foster and adoptive families. The first time I heard Dina speak was at a conference for foster and adoptive parents several years ago. I was really struggling with some of the challenges of being a caregiver for children with a background of trauma, and I was so grateful for her honest, down-to-earth, approachable, and hopeful tone and helpful practical insights for parents and caregivers. Dina shares really informative content about trauma-informed parenting on her Facebook page at Dina Johnson Counseling, which is linked below in the show notes. And today I asked Dina to talk a bit about what she would say to her younger self with the benefit of years of experience and hindsight. Dina offers transparency and vulnerability, letting us know we're not alone when we're facing challenges and struggles as we seek to serve our children with compassion and empathy. She's been a real blessing to me, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I just know that so many of our foster parents are not by their fault, um, but by the fault of the system, just woefully underprepared and yeah. uninformed. And they think yeah. they've put in a whole lot of time getting foster licenses, which of course they have. Right. But the energy hasn't gone to the places that when you actually hit the ground, foster parenting, you realize what I really needed was not to know how to lock up my medicines. What I really needed to know was how to deal with sensory issues or trauma yeah. issues. One of the things I really appreciate you on your Facebook page for your trauma counseling work is that you have been really open. And, and I think a lot of foster parents have found real camaraderie and connection with you in your openness about the challenges that you faced and also just how much you've learned over the years. And one of the first things I saw that you wrote on your, I think it was a fairly new page at the time, but you wrote like kind mm-hmm. of like a, if I could speak to my younger self. Oh, you, it was an apology, I think, to your younger self. Yep, like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and you were talking about all the, all the things that you look back and kind of cringe. And I mean, I definitely have a lot of that that I can relate to. So when you're being approached by somebody who's like a, curious about becoming a foster parent, or you're thinking, you know, or they're thinking about it and they know that you've been in this world, what are some of the first things that come to your mind that you would want to communicate? Oh, that's a good question, and it is. It's, it's such a um, it's such a sweet opportunity to be able to share with people as they're just starting out on the journey, because there, there's been such a dramatic change in our understanding over the last decade or two about kids in foster care or adoption and their their specific needs that are trauma and attachment driven. So when I get to speak with people now who are asking questions just starting out, I feel like I have. Um, I mean, really, I don't want to. I don't want to overpower them with information or ideas because there's so much bubbling around in my head that I wish I knew then that I know now. Right. I, I think probably where I where I generally start with people is is the idea that children in care, by definition, have experienced trauma. Yeah. And that makes you a trauma caregiver. Mm-hmm. And really, really uninformed and unaware sometimes about how trauma is shared, how it's vicarious. In other words, you as a caregiver for a trauma kid 
are also experiencing trauma secondhand. Right. And so I want I want parents to to have a good sense of how they care for themselves, um, how they grow aware of the impact of trauma. Because what we see happening in the worst case scenarios, and this this is certainly not everybody, um, but what we see happening in the worst case scenarios is that well-meaning, big-hearted, intentional foster parents get placed with very, very hard kids. Mm-hmm. They feel overwhelmed. They feel scared. They feel exhausted. They feel angry. And that's the recipe for a lot of bad things to happen, whether that's abuse or neglect or moving kids you know, from home to home to home yep. because they're a handful and parents aren't appropriately equipped um, with information on how to care for them well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And certainly that was the case for us. And like you, I mean, I would say not to the same extent, but like you, um, I find myself now talking with a lot of people. So I, I now draw from my experience, but I also draw from the many, many conversations I've had over the years. And that is a really common thing. You have people who are like in, you know, really excited and they're committed and they, you know, they want to do all the heavy lifting to get ready to be good foster parents. And then they're in it and you might talk to them a weekend and they're like, oh, things are going great. Everything is perfect. This child, I don't know why they said all this in his paperwork because he's just wonderful. And then, (laughs) you know, and then you talk to them six weeks later and you're like, oh, actually things have changed a little bit, you know, and, and you see that familiar deer in the headlights, exhausted, you know, look, and then they start talking about all the challenges. And so I think like you're saying, like just really recognizing you have to become like a lay student of child psychology and trauma. um, If you're going to really find a way, a path clearly to do this well for the long haul and not just for the child's trauma, not just the child's trauma, but your trauma history as well. Yeah, I, and I think that oftentimes we um, we overlook our own our own history of trauma, and that's not necessarily to say that everybody has um, you know horrific trauma, but the reality is almost everybody has some experience of trauma, whether that's divorce of a parent or loss of a loved one or you know violence in the household or older siblings who were harmful or abusive. And, and we minimize those things because, you know, life goes on and we, we're doing fine and we're doing well. But then we bring somebody into our home who replicates some of those same behaviors or who might trigger some, some memories on our own, of our own. And then we're shocked and astounded by how out of control we feel. Yeah. And that's, that's a normal part of parenting. It really is. It's just that we have it turned up on high with kids who are, our trauma kids. Yeah. Yeah. And kids that we didn't get from the beginning. So we didn't get all that good, like connecting and bonding time. So we're sort of jumping into being their primary caregiver and functioning as a parent for them. Even if we're not ultimately going to be their parent forever, we're functioning in that role for a season, months, or perhaps years. Um, and, uh, we, but we didn't have the early connecting of holding them and feeding them and gazing into their eyes and all those things. So it's just a really strange place to be. And then to tap into some depth of compassion for a child who's screaming at you and calling you names and kicking you and tearing up paintings in your house. And, you know, these are things they can't really prepare you for. No, no, they really can't. And I think, um, I think those are a couple of the big issues, right? Are the the angry and aggressive behaviors, 
Um, I think we also sometimes underestimate the the struggles involved around sensory issues like potty training and mm-hmm. eating and sleeping. Uh, those three categories, oh, you yeah. know, pick up enough time and energy to to suck the life out of a hundred human beings, much less the two that are trying to foster parents. Yeah. So, um, in addition to having some. Um, you know, some good trauma and attachment information. I think it's such a gift for parents to get some information around sensory integration issues. Yeah. Because this is something that is actually very hands-on and very practical, and it doesn't require 100 appointments with a therapist or an OT um, to, to jump into providing interventions that really, that really help meet the needs of kids who have sensory issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What would be what would be some of the ways that people could be prepared to address sensory issues in us in children? Yeah, absolutely. I think a really great place to start is by observation. Um, we need to look at our kiddos with the question in mind of what sensory struggles might this child have, mm-hmm. and and it's not they have sensory struggles; it's which ones do they have? Right. As we watch our kiddos, we want to look for aversion to tastes and sounds and touch or textures. Um, we want to look not just for aversion, but then also the seeking behaviors. You know, does this child need more than the average kid needs in the way of input visually or tactilely? Do they put everything in their mouth, even though they're well past the age where that's a normal behavior? Um, how, how do we assess? what those particular sensory needs are. What, what sometimes gets overlooked, too, is that it's not just the, the five senses that we want to sort of keep an eye out for. It's also the senses of, of proprioception and vestibular, which is really which really looks like the kid who, you know, rolls down the hallway from room to room or, or cartwheels from furniture to furniture or prefers mm-hmm. to hang upside down at every given opportunity. Mm-hmm. This isn't active kid. This is a kid who's expressing needs in those sensory areas. And so what, what sensory can we give kids appropriately and intentionally so yeah. that they don't get by singing from your chandelier in their time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we saw it early on, too, um, in one child that we had who uh, could not maintain an appropriate level of space from other people. Um, and we just, we didn't have a framework for understanding this. So it was just irritating, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but like we would, you know, we would be like, you move away. Like we would be at dinner and this is not a little, little person. This is like an, an old enough child that you would definitely not expect this if they were acting age appropriate. By the mm-hmm. end of dinner, they would literally be like in my lap pre- almost. Yeah. And it was like, you didn't notice when it happened and they weren't like doing it on purpose, but like literally their place would be set at a pr- appropriate distance. And over the course of a meal, <laughs> they would reach so much closer that they were practically on you. And you're like, I really need you to give me some space. And you feel terrible. Right. Telling this child get away from me, <laughs> and at the same time, if you don't help them learn those appropriate boundaries, they're going to irritate everybody in their world, and that's going to result in harm. Yeah, and these things, yeah, these social, these things that I'm talking about and that you're talking about, they do affect them outside of the home. This is not just yeah. in the home where it's an issue. And I think that's where we want to be really aware that when we're when we're training kiddos and when we're putting boundaries in place. 
we're doing it out of a real sense of kindness. We're, mm-hmm. we're wanting to them and provide, not shut them down in a way. Um, the goal is not so that, you know, my life is less stressful. Although, let's be honest, when my life is less stressful, I parent better. Yeah. So that's yeah. fair, too. But yeah. also, so when they're in the classrooms or on the sports team or on the bus or in Sunday school, they are not driving everybody crazy and getting kicked out all the time. Yes. I, I have a boy who, even at almost 17, has always struggled with his, um, his volume. Like, his voice is always at a near yell. Yeah. And it's been something that, um, you know, specific interventions haven't gone a long ways towards resolving in him. and. Mm-hmm. He's now in all sorts of other social situations outside of the home where, where people are still saying to him, dude, you're talking yeah. too loud. Or, yeah. dude, why are you yelling? And, yeah. You know, our, our goal would be to to help him navigate those situations more successfully. Yeah. That's very familiar to me. We live in that. We live with that as well. And, yeah, it's very hard to, you know, you get to a point, I think, as a caregiver or parent where you adjust and you find yourself being more okay with it than you used to be. I I know that's the case for me. We've sort of really gotten used to something like that, but then you're out somewhere and you're witnessing other people who haven't and have have no reason to, you know, get used to it. Yeah. And saying something to them and you're kind of like, you feel compassion for the person and you feel such compassion for your, your child. Cause you're like, yeah, they they are really loud. You're right. They are really loud. And there's no denying that. And they're not doing it on purpose. And you just pray right. that people can be compassionate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're saying, you know, we can tone it down. <laughs> you know, right? Well, and also, you know, having enough people in your circle who um, understand some of the struggles with mm-hmm. foster care, mm-hmm. where they can't angry and appropriately into a kid's life. Yeah. You know, hey, buddy, I want to hear what you Hey, I'm right here so you don't have to yell. Yeah. Or gosh, that's you're really excited about that. Um, could we talk about it in quieter voices? You know, I mean, there's there's ways that we as community can also speak into the lives of kids in kind and appropriate ways. Yes. Yeah. I think the other thing that that brought up for me as you were talking was um, how often we forget that developmental age and chronological age are not the same thing. Yeah. And. I think that's one of those areas that, that I definitely look back on and think, oh, I wish I would have, I wish I would have known this concept earlier, and I wish I would have implemented what that means earlier. Um, I think, especially as a first-time parent, you just don't know how little your kids are when you're when you're parenting for the first time. Your five-year-old suddenly seems quite grown and independent, and right, <laughs> like like yep. a big kid compared yes. to your little. Kid. Um, and so, even outside of you know fostering or, or adoption we sometimes forget how little our children are, um, especially in a society that I believe encourages them to grow up way too fast. Yeah. So they yeah. compound that with the reality that, you know, if, if our kiddos had prenatal substance exposure or early trauma and loss, abuse and neglect, their developmental age is not the same as their biological age. So I may have a 10-year-old in my home, and I'm expecting typical 10-year-old behaviors out of them, and then I'm frustrated beyond words when they're doing things that are much more typical of a four or five year old. Mm-hmm. And the, the passion to step back and accept the fact that, okay, this is the body of a 10 year old, but this is the, the emotional and developmental age of a five year old allows us to lower our expectations. And I don't mean lower them in, in a way that's, um, you know, dismissive or enabling, but 
but layer them in a way that's accurate. Yeah. I'm dealing with a five-year-old. What would I expect out of a five-year-old? Okay, mm-hmm. I understand 10 biologically, but severe harm occurred to you at a certain age that stunted your developmental process, and I need to let you be five, so then be six, mm-hmm. and then be seven, and then be eight, and catch up, hopefully, to an appropriate developmental stage. But that occurs over the process of, of quite a few years. Yes. That's so true. I mean, one of the first videos that I did when I started all this, my channel and everything was, um, how old is my foster child? And I talked Mm -hmm. all about that. Yeah. Because it was very, uh, very new to me, a whole new concept. I mean, I knew I I had almost no uh, preparation for that aspect of it when I went into it. And that was one of the first realizations that was very helpful to me. So I'm glad that you're reiterating that because I do think it's not, it's very counterintuitive, but it's so important to understand because it does feed into things like, why is this six-year-old still, you know, pooping his pants? Why is this, you know, um, or, you know, even 10-year-old? I mean, not, you know, not just, (laughs) I mean, there are still some six-year-olds who struggle, typical six-year-olds who will struggle with, you know, that. But I'm just saying, like, there's all sorts of things that come up where you're like, man, I don't expect this from an older child. Well, you have to remember they're not an older child in every way. So exactly. Um, And then I think think that impacts the way that we... um, we let our kids stay close. Um, mm-hmm. I have a, I have a nice little this week who, you know, he's been sleeping in the room since he came home at three and just recently wanted to sleep in our room. And I think a long time ago, would have, and, and, and did say, no, you're a big boy, go sleep in your own room. Like, fine. And mm-hmm. now my response is so much different. And I have, I have the pallet made up in my bed room and it's near, it's near me on my side of the bed. And if, he says, can I sleep in your room tonight? Whenever possible, the answer is, yeah, come on in. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'm still not, I'm still going to be one to say parents do need, parents do need their privacy and they do need time alone and they do need to be able to shut the door and have some, some peace at the end of the day. So I, I'm not saying 365 right. days a year we, we would say yes mm-hmm. to this, but there are things they go through where for whatever reason, he may be nine biologically, but he feels more like three or four in some ways and he has some needs that I can meet. Yeah. And when, you know, early on I would have, I would have responded to that kiddo with more of a, um, you know, biologically driven response of you're nine, you're okay. You've been sleeping on your own for a long time. Go to bed now. And now my, mm-hmm. now my difference in that I feel expressing a need and it's a much younger need. And my, my opportunity is to meet that younger need and to say, sure, come on in. Like here's, Here's a pallet by the side of my bed, and you're welcome to sleep in here tonight. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was saying earlier, like, it's appropriate for parents to have privacy and to shut their door at the end of the day and get some space. So I, I don't recommend this being a 365 days a year kind of thing. But when those seasons pop up where a kid's needy again, um, mm-hmm. we slow down, slow down and we meet those needs. Yeah, yeah. You were um, you you touched on something just now that I'd like to also ask about um, uh, in the sense of you know adults parents needing their privacy at times and parents needing mm-hmm. time together. Um, we never I don't remember anybody ever talking about how this journey would affect our our marriage, our relationship. And, um, yeah, we were in marriage counseling nine months into our first place. So, um, but, um, but what I wanted to ask about is that I sometimes have people say to me, 
I really want to be a foster parent, but my spouse is not really on board yet, or he's open to it, or she's open to it, but not really sure. How do you respond? I know how I respond. I'd love to hear how you respond to that. Yeah, I I really advise people not to move forward until they're in complete unity on the decision. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's sort of like the decision to have children. That should be something that the couples make in, in agreement. And although it's as permanent as the foster parent situation sometimes is or often is, I still think that you're going to need each other so desperately to survive. Mm-hmm. You're really getting in this journey. Um, and if, if you're a single parent and you don't have a partner, I think that's different than being a parent with a partner who's not on board. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I say the same thing. I'm like, if you're not both 100% in, because it it just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work well. It's not going to work for the long haul. And I mean, part of it too, is that this will take you from each other at times. And if you're not both sure that it's what you're both on board for, then when, you know, suddenly mom you know, dad comes home from work and mom is spent and dad Mm -hmm. resents the fact that mom is not now available to him in some way um, versus dad coming home and going, wow, you have been doing this thing that we're both committed to all day. Why don't you go take a break and let me tag in for a bit? You know, Um, it just, it makes such a difference. And, you know, I know several couples where they went ahead and gave it a try and then it was just too hard. And then they had to, you know, stop And, uh, you know, and then there's resentment on the other end, you know, there's the resentment that, you know, I really felt called to this and you've bailed on it. And now, you know, Uh, and then also consider the impact on, on kids in your home, because if that kid ends up being removed from your home and bounced to another home, um, because it doesn't work out for your spouse, that's not appropriate. That's not fair for the kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, And we all, we always want to be about child-centered in all the decisions that we make. And if if we're making it about birth parents or if we're making it about foster parents or if we're making it about adoptive parents, we're missing our primary calling, which is to serve children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talk about that, and, and um, I've read some of the things that you've written where you've really just emphasized the importance of, of having all of our policies and all of our practices being child-centric. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big surprises to me when I got into all of this was the groups that are super anti-foster care, super anti-adoption and making it, making it, yeah, like, um, somehow all these foster and adoptive parents are, are out to victimize, um, the, the parents of the children who come into care. And, you know, while I don't doubt that there are certain, um, outlier situations where, uh, a child was removed in haste and really shouldn't have been, and it sets them on this horrible journey. I mean, we've actually seen that in one case. We've had a lot of kids that have come and gone in our home, and there's one case where I would say they probably did not need to pull this child out of her mom's care. But most of the time, it's so clear that the children just weren't safe, you know? And how... Um, how kind of have you maneuvered that? Because you're pretty public in your in your um, work and in your teaching and all of that. You know, I think um, I think the stance that says this is not about birth parent versus foster parent or birth parent versus adoptive parent. This is about kids. is is really the best way that I have found to um, to express 
my my core you know beliefs and desires for for the system. So it's not that um, it's not that we're opposed to birth parents. We hope and long for birth parents to get healthy and to get stable, so that children can have safe, permanent homes. Um, we we all understand as a society that that is Plan A. We absolutely always want to advocate for Plan A. Um, the reality of kids who are in care, however, is is already Plan B or C or D. Yeah. And so then we have to deal with with that reality. Um, I think there are ways that we can simultaneously be providing interventions for birth parents that are more effective and more um, uh, more kid focused. So a lot of times, what we do with interventions with birth parents is focus on um, their sobriety, their health, their relationships, which is completely appropriate and helpful. But we also need them actually having parenting skills and people walking a them rather than providing a six-week class with them and finding ways to include birth parents who are able and willing to be in the decision-making process and that not being an adversarial experience between birth parents and foster parents. Um, I've, I've come to see more and more that a lot of that adversity or adversarial relationship is not actually driven by birth parents and foster parents. It's driven by a system that has had to compartmentalize these two groups of people in order to meet two very different sets of, of needs. Mm-hmm. So whether it's intentional or unintentional, there's a lot of don't talk to the foster parent, don't tell the birth parent. You can't communicate with the foster parent. You shouldn't communicate with the birth parent. Um, and that creates a lot of tension that may not actually be there. It's been remarkable to me how many times once we've actually got birth parents and foster parents into the same room, you hear over and over again, oh, that's not what I was told. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, the reason I didn't contact you is because I was told not to contact you. Or, you know, you know what I mean? There's just a Absolutely. lot. Yep. And it's, it's crazy making for everybody involved. And so I think you do have birth parents who are at times feeling that they have been unfairly treated by the system mm-hmm. and also have foster parents who feel like they've been unfairly treated by the yeah. system. The yeah. common denominator here is the system, not the parents. Right. <laughs> so we really yeah. find ways to, to encourage appropriately um, supporting, supporting birth parents with the goal of reunification. And then, you know, it's crazy because then you have to simultaneously accept the fact that and a large percentage of those parents are not going to get well. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. not going to choose their child over mm-hmm. their lifestyles. And mm-hmm. um, that, is, that is heartbreaking and that is disappointing. And at that point in time, we still have to say what comes first is the child's best interest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I, you're so right. That was our experience as well. I think when we were in training, we were encouraged to do like a journal back and forth at visits, but mm-hmm. we were not, nothing beyond that. And there was just this sort of like, I don't know, shroud of mystery around yeah. the families or the birth families or, you know, whatever, first families. And I um, I don't know why, but pretty early on, it was really important to me to introduce myself Um and be there to make face to face contact. And, um, overwhelmingly, I would say of all the children we've had, whose families we have had contact with overwhelmingly, it's been positive. We have had one family who 
rejected our efforts and, and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, did file a CPS allegation, mm-hmm. which, you know, was, was unfounded, but I think in there, you know, they were just really feeling ashamed and feeling, um, um, like they wanted to show that they weren't, they weren't the only ones who were messing up things, you know, and, um, but overwhelmingly it's been positive. And I think that was one of another surprise for me was I always assumed, I think early on that, um, that the, the children's parents would not want to know us. And then I was like, wait a minute, their children are away from them. And for whatever they've done or, you know, whatever, you know, bad decisions they've made that have harmed or affected their children negatively, they're still their kids. And so like showing up now, I tell people, and I will say too, I think it's on the foster parent. I think the onus is on the foster parent to show Mm -hmm. up, shake, you know, offer a handshake and say, I want, I, I, I thought you might like to meet the person who's caring for your child right now. And, um, here's a a phone number. I set up a Google voice number. It's not my cell phone, but it's like a Google voice number. And I'm like, here's a phone number. If you want to text me, I'll text you pictures. If you'd like, you know, just like this is while they're in foster care. I'm saying you're trying to help them stay connected because recognizing, first of all, it is their child and they are terrified. They don't know where their child is and all of that. Then they're dealing with a lot of shame. They're dealing with a lot of guilt and then they're dealing with the practical reality of, of addiction a lot of times. So it's like, I would love to kick this, but that's the whole nature of addiction. It's like, it's really hard to kick. Right. And then, you know, time away, I know, I know, I know uh, birth parents who've said things like my child's probably better off with them anyway, you know, and Mm. then it sort of takes away their, their um, incentive or, or whatever motivation to get well. And when a foster parent can be, you know, giving a steady stream of, Hey, you know, your, your kid is doing this, they're doing well, here's a picture, they miss you they're cheering. We're all cheering for you. I mean, I've said that we're cheering for you. We are hoping for your recovery or your success or whatever. Um, but I do think it's on the foster parent and I, I didn't used to think that, you know, I didn't used to have that attitude. Yeah. My, my attitude has changed also. And, and largely as a result of actually having relationships with birth parents. Um, right. Funny how when it's a person and not a concept, it's a little bit harder to maintain a real black and white Right. Mentality about, you know, yeah. And I, I do, I think, um, I think what's tricky is that you're sometimes going to have social workers telling you that you can't do that. And I would just say, ask questions, push, mm-hmm. push back a little bit and say, why? Mm-hmm. Um, policy, where is that written? Can you show me, you know, what code or RCW or WAC you know, yeah. says that? Because my understanding is that I, I can and that actually it's beneficial for a child to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I don't know exactly where that tension originates from other than just the incredibly overworked and understaffed experience of so many state offices. So I, I try to hold that in compassion as well, but, um, gosh, for the grownups, we, we have to be the ones who are doing everything within our power to look out for the kid's best interests. And so, yep, if that's stepping into the un, sort of uncomfortable situation of, hi, it's nice to meet you. You know, I'm caring for your child and I want to do whatever I can to support you in this process. Yeah. And I think again, back to focusing on the kids saying things like, 
your kid's amazing. You've, you've done. And I said this to one woman, the first time I met her, we met in a parking lot. It was a visit swap. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about why your daughter's in care right now, but I want you to know, I can tell that you're a good mom. There's Mm -hmm. a lot, you know, I said, we've had a lot of kids who've come and gone and it is clear that you have taken very good care of your child, you know, and she's very happy and, you know, well-adjusted and, and all of that. So for whatever circumstances you're in that this is going, you know, that you're going through right now, I can tell that you're a good mom and you just, you've got our support, you know, um, we're behind you and we want to see you guys back together again. And they are back together again. And they were at our house over the weekend for a birthday party. Yeah. Yeah. that, That a lot of foster parents don't know is that, oh my goodness, some of the biggest joy in this process occurs after reunification. Yeah, that you still have kiddos in your life if you if you want to and can you mm-hmm. can still do birthday parties you can still do camping you know you still get to maintain relationship um, yeah. that's in the best interest for the kids to not yeah. lose a significant attachment relationship and really it's in the best interest of, of birth families too because they know that they have somebody in their corner they know they have somebody who can support them even if it's a unofficial off the records kind of way and that feels so much more humane and so much kinder than an institutionally driven system. Definitely. Definitely. We have just another maybe eight minutes or so. um, And I would love to know what you are doing now, because I know that you have your own family history, but you also are a therapist and you do trainings. Can you sort of describe the landscape of what you do with your counseling and teaching and all of that? And then maybe talk about if there are people listening who are really needing some training, needing some input, how could they connect with you or, or yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, I'm doing a lot of different things right now. And most of those are, are part-time because yep, I still have five or six kiddos at home, and um, I'm sort of co-parenting a grandbaby right now. So I have a private practice, and I work with families doing the attachment and trauma-informed therapy. And that, you know, that generally just looks like a couple couple sessions with kiddos, but a whole lot of sessions with mom or dad or mom and dad in the room as we identify and, you know, hands-on in the moment do training and attachment techniques. Um, that's a lot of fun because you see, you see kids blossom and you see parents become more confident in, um, in interventions that are actually helpful and successful. In addition to private practice, I am on the board of a nonprofit called Fostering Change Washington, and I do some trainings for them about four times a year where I come into whatever community would like me. And I do an eight-hour training on trauma and attachment-informed parenting using some of the trust-based relational intervention principles and a whole bunch of other really solid um, neurodevelopmental, science-based, good information about our kids and how to intervene with them in ways that are, that are positive and hopeful. And then I've also just recently um, completed a train-the-trainer to offer a post-grad certification in trauma and attachment-informed therapy for graduate students um, or master's-level counselors, therapists, and social workers. So those things take up the the bulk of my free time. My Facebook page is Dina Johnson Johnson Trauma 
what is my Facebook page? I can't remember what it's called. I think it's Dina Johnson Trauma Counseling, but I'll link it in the show notes. So. But you're on Facebook, the, yeah. I'm on Facebook, and that has information about my trainings and how to contact me. Um, really, what I spend a lot of time doing is providing referrals. So um, if people reach out to me and I can't meet their needs, I can do my dead level best to put them with people who can and um, have a growing network of really admirable, respectable therapists and and caregivers and OTs who um, are around the state and around the country. Yeah. I love it. One of the things that I, as a fellow, um, you know, I mean, I see, I see a lot of my journey when I read things that you write and post. So I really appreciate the camaraderie of it. And, uh, you posted something recently where you talked about one of your kids kind of in a, in a state of dysregulation, pointing out maybe that, that you don't always do this perfectly. (laughs) Yep. And I was just so grateful for your transparency. And I try to be transparent myself because while I am, uh, I am pro connected parenting, pro positive parenting, pro TBRI and, you know, trauma informed parenting, we all have our, you know, our, um, dysregulated moments, let's say. And just holes in our own awareness about how perhaps we impact others and, yeah, I know that in my in my get things taken care of mode, I'm I'm very efficient, but I'm not very kind, mm-hmm. and so you know needing to needing to be present and not just um, not just effective is, is a continued ongoing struggle for me. Yeah. And it was way 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 easier with the little um, than it is with the school age and and especially the adolescents who are preparing to launch, you know, it feels so urgent that there's so much that has to get done and taught and learned. And, um, I can go into full on, you know, teacher mode and it's, it's more like drill sergeant than attachment parent. That's for sure. Yeah. Same here. Same here. I think we probably could. Do you know your Enneagram type? Oh, I'm an eight. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I'm asking people that a lot more lately. And um, I find that I connect with a lot of people who are like me. I'm a one with a two wing and um, or like an eight. Um, yeah. I mean, because we're the ones that are kind of out there trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> right. Yep. I have a daughter who's that way. And boy, she's, she's fantastic to be around, but she has more come she has more instinctive compassion. I've had to learn it. Whereas she seems to just embody it and, um, yeah, learn a lot from these kiddos. Yeah, we do. We do. They're, they're definitely our teachers as much as we're theirs, maybe more. (laughs) I'll tell you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I am grateful to share um, your work with with my listeners and just as a resource that people should definitely, at the very least, follow you on Facebook because I think your information, the posts that you give, and then um, just your transparency about the journey is so helpful. And we need to know that we're not alone in this. And um, yeah. So I appreciate you saying that because I, I don't think that I necessarily have anything new or um, unique to say in this field, but what I've felt compelled to do is is share and be real and give other people permission to to be real too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thanks so much and we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Okay, thanks, Christy. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a Fostered Life podcast. For more information and resources for foster parents, 
please visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, YouTube videos, and social media links so you can connect with others on the foster parenting journey. If you're interested in supporting my work at A Fostered Life, please go to afosteredlife.com and click on the tab, Support My Work. This will take you to my Patreon page where you can become a patron. Just $1 a month helps offset the cost of producing these resources and enables me to offer them freely to new and prospective foster parents. And I'm grateful for the support of my patrons. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about foster care.